Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There are significant developments in the war in Yemen. Last month, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia's steadfast partner in the war, said it was pulling its troops out. This week, a separatist militia supported by the United Arab Emirates turned on the Saudi-backed government of President Hadi and drove it from the southern port of Aden. A series of high-level meetings has ensued, but it's clear the the Saudi-led coalition is a mess. With me is Shireen Aladimi. She teaches at Michigan State and is originally from Yemen and is active in ending U.S. intervention in Yemen. Thanks for joining us again, Shireen. Thanks for having me. I wonder if we could go back to last month when the United Arab Emirates uh, said it was pulling its troops out. Um, the press at the time was saying, well, this they're trying to do it um, quietly and not embarrass Saudi Arabia, but really they've thrown in the towel on what's happening in Yemen. Um, what was going on there? I think it's an interesting position that the UAE is trying to project. They said that they were scaling down and then a few days later clarified through their um, officials that they weren't in fact leaving a vacuum in Yemen, quote unquote, and that they were training about 90,000 additional local fighters to remain uh, committed to this cause that was led by Saudi Arabia and the UAE back in 2015. And so I think it, it what seems to me is that they were trying to project that they were leaving Yemen, but it just may have been a re-strategizing where they're maybe pulling out some of their own forces uh, who are in charge of security. We know, that, for example, that the UAE runs 18, at least 18 secret prisons in South Yemen, uh, but they were replacing them with um, more mercenaries, more local fighters um, in Yemen. Well, then, then we get this news about one of these separatist organizations that they support in the south, and it overruns uh, Aden and forces out the, the government of President Hadi. Um, it, it, what is going on there? <laughs> Why would you do that if you were uh, part of this coalition? So the UAE seems to have had different interests in Saudi Arabia from the beginning. Um, Saudi Arabia has maintained their position that they are trying to reinstate Hadi as the quote-unquote legitimate president of Yemen. He's a UN-recognized president. Uh, But he's not based in Yemen. He hasn't been based in Yemen since 2015. He doesn't have very much uh, local support, not even in South Yemen, which is controlled by supposedly his government, which they share with al-Qaeda. But the UAE, on the other hand, saw a group of people, the Southern Transitional Council, whose agenda is one of uh, secession from the north, and they supported them. And so the STC has been based in Aden for a couple of years, um, which was this uh, strange kind of coexistence with the Hadi government. They're technically also a rebel group, but the Hadi government seemed to have tolerated them because, again, they're funded by the UAE and they're supported by the UAE. But their agenda has been clear from the beginning that they want secession from the north and they don't see the point of continuing on to try to capture northern territory from the Houthis um, if, in fact, they want to secede from Yemen altogether. Well, does their point of view reflect what the United Arab Emirates is moving to? I think the UAE is playing a a dangerous role here for them. I think um, any division is uh, helpful, you know. Uh, divide and conquer is, is the old agenda. People are used to this in wartime. Uh, but they're also interested in, for example, Yemen's uh, ports, which are not just in the south, but the port of Hadeda. They were very much interested in that when they uh, launched an attack last year. And this was, of course, a failed attack and caused tremendous casualties. But they eventually, um, uh, you know, uh, backed off from that attack. Um, And they're still interested in Yemen's oil fields and gas liquefaction plants and the oil terminals and the seaports. And so um, 
on the one hand, they seem to be supporting the Saudis in this, um, you know, full occupation of Yemen. Uh, And then on the other hand, they're supporting the southern separatists who see no point in continuing on this war and would rather just secede with the territory that they currently have anyway. Um, I think it's unclear what their agenda is, uh, but it certainly seems to be different from that of Saudis. So do we have a, uh, you know, a lot of different agendas in the Saudi-led coalition now? Can we say that there are a bunch of people who want a bunch of different things in this supposed coalition that is fighting the Houthis? I mean, this is a reflection of how careless and reckless this war has been from the beginning. Yemeni's interests were never the motivation. Um, Saudi attacked because they wanted to assert dominance over Yemen, something that they'd done throughout decades in the past. They've always had their man in Yemen, so to speak, uh, and they were going to lose that if the Houthis became powerful enough. And so they launched this attack. It wasn't thought through. They said that they were going to end in a couple of months. They called it decisive storm. You know, it's been more than four years now. And um, I think this is a reflection of how, um, you know, unprepared they were for this war. Um, I think eventually the UAE found that they could have their own interests. They could occupy Yemen's islands and benefit from its oil fields and and terminals and seaports and whatnot. Uh, But the agenda still remains one that's very confused and has no, um, you know, basis in trying to promote Yemeni interests. They're just trying to promote their own agenda, whatever that may be. And I think the situation is still unfolding and unpredictable, but um, certainly Yemenis are paying the price. I'm talking with Shireen Aladimi. She teaches at Michigan State and is originally from Yemen and is active in ending the U.S. intervention in Yemen. And we're trying to sort out what sort out what's been happening with the United Arab Emirates and its allies in Yemen who are bucking the Saudi-led coalition in different ways. Uh, well, what do the Saudis do now? I mean, they, you know, the king had uh, high-level meetings with people, and uh, they're trying to pull the coalition back together. And it seems like, you know, you know, the U.S. Congress is thrown in the towel in the war. There's all sorts of people who want um, to seemingly to move on in some way, but the Saudis, uh, do they? Are they going to stick to it? I mean, they've taken a very stubborn position on this war. Um, They want to win this war, which seems to be unwinnable. I mean, they are fighting the Houthis who don't even have an air force, and they haven't been able to capture any more territory than they had in 2015, essentially. The Houthis still control uh, the northern part of Yemen with 80% of the population there. They've tried starving people uh, to death by blockading um, the ports and the land and sea, uh, you know, airports and uh, seaports and whatnot. And it just seems to be this wild agenda that isn't going anywhere and isn't resulting in anything except for massive uh, starvation and death in Yemen. Uh, Congress has, uh, you know, moved to end the U.S.'s participation in the war, but we know that Trump has vetoed that and continues to support the Saudis uh, because of how much money, frankly, they've been, um, you know, uh, they've been spending on this war and, and U.S. companies benefit from that. Uh, but there is no clear agenda. There is no clear uh, way out. Um, and the most responsible thing to do, of course, is to just say, you know, we've moved on. Uh, but they're not going to do that. I think they're still going to hold on. And I read a headline that said Saudi is rallying behind Hadi, which is very interesting because Yemenis aren't rallying behind Hadi. Nobody wants Hadi as president. And this uh, latest uh, the latest clashes in the south, I think, confirm that neither northern Yemenis nor southern Yemenis want Hadi as president. It's up to the Yemeni people to decide. But we, you know, we cannot do that with so much foreign interference from the Saudis, the UAE and the U.S. 
Well, do you think that this uh, southern secessionist group has really put uh, split Yemen back on the table and that they're, they're going to drive hard for that? I know they're contacting international uh, folks to get support. They're talking to the United Nations and saying, we want this on the agenda. Uh, is, is this something that is the end of the war is a split Yemen? It might be. As, as much as this pains me to say, it might be the way out. It might be an agreement between southern Yemenis who want to secede and northern Yemenis who um, don't want to secede but also have not um, have not attempted to overtake the South in any way over the last three years. They've kind of just been fighting the Saudis and the Emiratis and whatnot. Uh, but that may be the way out for, you know, uh, to stop the bloodshed, to stop any kind of further uh, devastation in the country, to say that Yemen goes back to two countries and we see what happens. Um, many people in the South feel that it's they're under forced unity. Um, Yemen used to be two different countries and they united prematurely, I think, in 1990. And then the South announced secession in 1994 and a civil war broke out. Um, and many people in the South feel like they're under a forced unity. So I don't think that unity may be a viable option. Um, but again, I hope that that decision is made by the Yemeni people without foreign interference. How do you get something like that on the table, that the voice of the Yemeni people ends up uh, having a prominent role here? You know, that's the sad part here is that um, it hasn't been represented and uh, Saudi has been allowed to occupy, to bomb, to starve along with the UAE and with tremendous support from the United States with no accountability, um, with no, you know, um, respect for Yemen's sovereignty. And, um, and Yemen cannot begin to solve its own internal problems with the Houthis and the separatists and the Al-Qaeda and whatnot um, when so much foreign interference is going on. So I really think it's up to Yemenis to try to even, even the separatists to try to denounce any kind of backing, you know, from the UAE, from Saudi Arabia, and to try to negotiate directly Yemeni to Yemeni and try to solve this. Because I don't think that um, the international community is going to intervene in a way that, um, you know, holds Saudi or UAE accountable in any way. Is there any way for the international community to intervene and uh, mediate in a way that would be uh, amenable to people in Yemen? I think, you know, maybe people who have not had a direct role in this conflict would be best positions to mediate. Uh, unfortunately, many people have been directly profiting from this war over the last four and a half years. Um, and so, you know, if, if, if the suggestion is that the U.S. mediates, then that would be a horrible idea because they've been part of the coalition for so long. But a country like Oman, for example, who's not part of the coalition and who has maintained positive ties with different factions in Yemen, I could see that they could play an important role in mediation. I, you know, it was so interesting to see the uh, U.S. Congress uh, come down against arms sales on Saudi Arabia. Are, does this kind of confusion in Yemen, uh, is there a chance for a few more votes? Can, can the Congress override Trump's veto if it, if it goes in again at this? Uh, I, I, I don't know. So right now we're trying to get um, you know, Speaker Pelosi and, the, and Congress to try to prioritize the War Powers Act in the National Defense Authority. Authorization Act, the NDAA of 2020, to ensure that there's no 
you know, weapon sales to Saudi Arabia, that there's no logistical support, intelligence sharing and things like that. So try to bypass the veto that way. And I think that's really essential. I mean, we play such a significant role in fueling this war. Saudis don't manufacture their own weapons. They don't train their own soldiers. They don't refuel their own jets. They rely on the U.S. almost entirely to do this work for them. Um, And I think seeing just how, um, you know, like you said, there's com- there's confusion on the ground. It's not a clear-cut war. It's not, you know, one group versus the other. Uh, maybe this will propel, you know, m- members of Congress here to push further and to really try to end the U.S.'s participation in this war that's really not going anywhere. Uh, is the is Iran a winner in all this just by just by watching what's going on? I think Iran's role has been heavily exaggerated in this war. Um, that's something that Saudi likes to say that they're, you know, trying to protect um, Yemenis from Iranian interference. The fact of the matter is that Iran has very little control over what's happening. Um, the Houthis in Yemen have a positive relationship with Iran, but nothing compared to the backing that the Saudis have received from the U.S. or from any other, uh, all these uh, major countries. Um, so I think Iran's role is minimal here. Uh, I don't know if they have any interest really in Yemen. Um, they don't share uh, culture or geography with them at all. Um, what they do share with them is just a uh, kind of like moral support. They've been providing moral support and perhaps some intelligence, but no more than that. So um, I hesitate to think that Iran really has anything to gain or to lose, um, but that's certainly been part of Saudi's narrative. Shireen Aladimi is a teacher at Michigan State University, and she's originally from Yemen and is active in ending the U.S. intervention in Yemen. Thanks a lot for joining us and sorting out what's been going on with the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll dip into the Worldview archives and talk about the history of China. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 2019 marks 25 years that Worldviews brought you human stories from at home and abroad. To celebrate, we wanted to bring you some selections from our deep archive. Jonathan Spence, former professor of history at Yale University, joined us in 1999 to talk about the history of protest in China. At the time, we were looking back at different aspects of the Tiananmen Square protests only 10 years after the events in Beijing. I began by asking about a crucial factor in understanding China's nature of protest, the well-established relationship between intellectuals and the state during China's long dynastic era. 
There was a very strong tradition in China for the scholar class in, in general, representatives of those scholars who had studied the correct texts and, and were fairly senior, were believed to have a true voice in the society, and, and they were expected to comment on, on moral matters when they felt the, particularly when they felt the country was, when they felt the country was um, in any kind of trouble. In, in terms of, you know, the way it was managed by the emperors. So it really was part of your, your moral training and, and the structure of the state that you were expected to speak out. Though it was always risky. There was no period in which it was not risky to criticize the government. And sometimes the more courageous members of the scholar class would, would pay for their their bravery or their rashness by, by being imprisoned or killed. I mean, what were what were the things that made it risky why did the rules of the game end up being um speaking out is risky why why wasn't there a, a sense of loyal opposition well that's a very immensely complicated question that the the emperors believed that they could um control criticism by having special officials who were uh, they were called censors. They, they were the censorial staff, and, and they were expected to monopolize the official route of criticism. And they were expected to give what we might call acceptable levels of critique to the emperor. The people who did this from outside were always regarded as, um, in some way, challenging the, the, the power of the state or the correctness of the state bureaucracy. So I think that the Chinese felt uh, over time that they had established a kind of an internal mechanism that was adequate, and thus they would not encourage voices from outside. They believed that people who disagreed with the government on the whole were troublemakers. When did China begin having enough students to really student protest in a way that um, that was significant? Yes, well, the idea of a, of, a, of a student having a sort of moral responsibility to speak up when, when he or she is young, uh, this was a, a, a development really from about the 1880s. Before that time, this, when we, we use the word student, it's rather confusing, because in traditional China under the dynasties, a student could well be in his 40s or even 50s. And only in the 19th century did large numbers of women uh, begin to become students, as universities changed their structure and the, and the idea of a Western university took root uh, inside China itself, and also as Chinese students, both men and women, began to travel to Japan for a university education, also to the United States and to Western Europe. And so you got 11 of students who were now uh, much younger than they had been in terms of their entry into uh, independent university life, and they were absorbing various traditions of protest, including now ideas of, of um, republican government and democratic institutions from the studies that from the societies that they were studying. So we began to get a new kind of uh, willingness to speak out, and and the idea of the educated Confucian elite occasionally having the courage to speak out was now replaced by the idea that younger students in these modernized schools were the conscience and the voice of a new China. And if they wanted their views to be heard, they must uh, speak out forcefully. And the idea of demonstrating while you spoke out slowly came into the picture by about um, the 1890s. In the um, in 1919, 1926, 1935, there were um, significant student protests, but um, they they weren't overtly about. Um, 
participation in, in decision making for for China? I mean, they were mostly about what? They were mostly related either to foreign policy or various kinds of domestic crises. The 1919 uh, was a huge demonstration, usually called the May 4th uh, demonstration. And that was really partly against foreign powers uh, whom the Chinese felt had betrayed their own interests in the, in the Versailles negotiations after World War One, But that was also against uh, trick, uh, crooked politicians in China itself, who they felt had sold them down the river. And it also did, however, have a slogan of... Uh, knowledge in general for the Chinese people, and it, the slogan it raised was um, science and, and democracy, to try and encourage scientific thinking, education, and also democratic participation. The demonstrations in the 1920s tended to often be either against uh, foreign imperialists, particularly the British, uh, who were involved in some violent episodes in China in which Chinese civilians were killed by British police in various um, diplomatic and commercial areas controlled by the British, but on Chinese soil, and that led to great anger. There were also major demonstrations by students uh, who sided with the workers who were trying to strike for better conditions. And in the 1930s, these, these demonstrations and strikes were mainly against the Japanese, as Japan began to push its pressure on China. But I think you could say that in all these cases, the the impetus was what was felt as a violation of Chinese sovereignty by foreign powers more than it was a um, an attempt to actually get a voice inside the organs of government. Uh, were these demonstrations, uh, how often, I mean, there, you mentioned that it's always risky to protest in, in China. Uh, how often did it come to um, violent crackdown? Well, the 1919 one uh, was one of the first biggest ones, and there was very strong police presence. Uh, the, the demonstration was finally broken up by the police. The, the demonstrators and the students, they sacked um, the house of one of the ministers and burnt the, uh, the place and, and very nearly, in fact, killed him and, and some of his family, though they, the people escaped. One of those students later died in, in prison, either from injuries received before or by police. Uh, violence inside the jail, but there was other people got pushed around, but there was no massive casualties. But in some of the demonstrations in 1925 uh, against the uh, foreigners, uh, many people were killed. I think um, well over 20 were shot in the demonstration in, in early 1925, and I think in almost 30 were shot uh, in, in Canton later that year. Now... And, so yeah. the violence became fairly considerable, and in 1930s, uh, there weren't always killings, but there was nearly always some kind of police, very, very restrictive and tough police presence. Why why did it come to violence when they were protesting things um, that were basically um, foreign policy issues or, or nationalist Kind of, well, I mean, it seems like they're almost yeah. protesting for more government in a way. At times. Again, I suppose that always, in, in almost any society, it depends how jumpy the, the state is, uh, how nervous the police are, and how uh, strident the leaders of the demonstration are in, in where they might be going to march to. They might be given a certain route and they decide to violate uh, you know, the, the terms of the agreement they've made with the city authorities, for instance, some different people might take over the demonstration and demand that they go in a new area. They might charge the police lines and try and break through in some way. 
the rhetoric might just be so striking that it goes to the, you know, it gets everybody very excited. In some cases, the police might be seen as the allies of the very foreign powers who are being protested against. If the government, for instance, is regarded as corrupt uh, and cozying up to the foreigners, then the demonstrators might swing the demonstration in the direction of, away from just a nationalist direction into an anti-governmental direction. And the police uh, will respond to what they consider adequate force. And if they get jumpy and are issued live ammunition, which they, they often were in China, and they had, uh, or they had pistols or rifles very early on, uh, they would use them. Were there any other significant um, student kind of demonstrations from after 1935 until, until after World War II? There would be. There, there were some very important ones in just before World War II broke out. In, in China, World War II begins in the summer of 1937. Uh, and some of these biggest demonstrations took place, um, as well as the anti-Japanese ones I've mentioned. There were some major demonstrations against Chiang Kai-shek, uh, who was leading the Nationalist Party in China. Uh, and some of these demonstrations were orchestrated by the Communist Party, which had been driven underground in many areas and was anxious to, to make a comeback. Uh, there were very few demonstrations, for obvious reasons, against the Japanese once they had uh, invaded China in force after 1937, because the Japanese simply responded to too massively and brutally, and it was really impossible to demonstrate against them. What were the uh, issues surrounding the uh, Chiang Kai-shek demonstrations? Well, the, 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 the big ones in 1936 were to try and push Chiang Kai-shek away from a policy of trying to suppress communists in China and to shift that policy into one of allying with the communists in order to attack the Japanese. So what the students and various other organizers wanted was to stop the civil war inside China because Chiang Kai-shek was determined to destroy the Communist Party of China first and then turn the country against the Japanese. He thought the Japanese were a less serious threat to China than actually the communists in terms of the way the country was going. So these strikes and demonstrations were to try and force Chiang Kai-shek uh, to change his policy. And, and in late 1936, Chiang Kai-shek was actually kidnapped um, by um, some army troops in the, in the northwest, and this, combined with demonstrations, led him to at least agree tacitly to switch the direction of his policy. And from early 1937 onwards, China began to take a much tougher stance towards the Japanese and a less aggressive stance towards the communists. So you can say in that sense that the 1936 demonstrations were successful. All right, if we're going to zip zip up past World War II um, to a a communist China, yes. I imagine, what what kind of role did the communists play in kind of um, squelching or, or reconnoitering the students uh, in China in those days? The only major demonstrations that began to happen in China were those that were uh, allowed uh, by the state for reasons of state policy. And my guess is that the first huge demonstrations after the communists took over in 1949 were either those against the Americans because of the um, Korean War, when China saw the United States as the, the main enemy in that war. And so you got huge demonstrations called uh, Resist America, Aid Korea. Uh, and these were vast street demonstrations all over China. 
which were encouraged by the government. So that was one kind of demonstration. The other was demonstrations against capitalists or landlords in, inside China when China began to pursue a more aggressive socialist policy after the communist victory. And these demonstrations, again, involving tens of thousands of people, were permitted by the government against designated targets. But I don't think there were any uh, major, what we might call, illegal demonstrations at this time. These were permitted and organized, orchestrated demonstrations. I think the first big uh, illicit demonstrations would probably be those in the 1970s, when people for the first time began to criticize the government of the aging Mao. And uh, what were the what were the gripes there? I mean, what were the main main uh, points of contention? Well, I think uh, uh, these these demonstrations in the 1970s grew out of a kind of pattern of huge mass uh, demonstrations that had begun actually in 1966 during the Cultural Revolution in China. Again, those initially were permitted by by the Communist Party and by Mao, and and they tried to control them. But again, some of those demonstrations got out of hand and began to attack figures in the government, perhaps who the government had not wanted to be attacked. So by the 1970s, China was getting a new kind of tradition of demonstrations. But by the 19... Well, I mean, is that basically a backlash to the uh, Cultural Revolution? Well, I, I think uh, I think we're not sure, actually. That's, that's a very difficult question to try and work out how, this, how, the, how these two fit together. We can say that the Cultural Revolution sort of reintroduced the idea of enormous demonstrations and even street fighting become a part of, of the scene. And so by 1976, when Mao was desperately ill and uh, Zhou Enlai, the Prime Minister of China, had just died, uh, what I would call the first really sort of spontaneous demonstration with a definite political, political agenda that was hostile to the very wishes of the government. That would be the famous demonstration in the spring of 1976, which was held in Beijing. It was to mourn uh, the passing of, of Zhou Enlai, uh, which had happened a few months before. And the uh, emerging Chinese leader, Deng Xiaoping, was blamed for those demonstrations, in fact, by the government. <laughs> but how to, how to intersect that with the Cultural Revolution, I think, is really almost impossible to do with precision. We can just say that things were changing in China, and many of the people who demonstrated in 76 m- might indeed have had their first experience of demonstrating when there were red guards during the Cultural Revolution. So if we were um, to look back here for a second and say, well, what's, what's left of the old dynastic opposition, um, you know, the, the things that used to happen in the old China of, of the dynasties, and what is, what's different now by 1978 and by, the, by this uh, post-World uh, War II era where, where people who aren't permitted are, are protesting? Right. Well, I, I think, in fact, I mean, this depends on your view as a historian, I think, but <clears throat> I would say that there is considerable continuity, uh, oddly enough, despite the different nature of the regimes and the changing patterns of the Communist Party. And I would say that continuity goes, in fact, right through the 1980s, through the big uh, Tiananmen demonstrations in 1989, uh, and perhaps even in some strange way down to the recent demonstrations in, in Beijing. 
what I mean by this is that the Chinese uh, traditionally in the dynastic period uh, and still today feel that the educated person uh, has an obligation uh, to speak out uh, against political injustice. And of course, if that is made easy for them or safe, then there's no then there's no problem if they have a representative way of doing this or a forum for expressing their views. Then then they will use it. But if those if those modes of expressing your 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 anguish or your um, your you know your wish to espouse different views, if those are systematically suppressed by the state and by the police, then intellectuals I think have a stronger moral sense in in many cases in China than perhaps we have in in our society where we feel we have the right to be left undisturbed and to get on with our own work. And if we happen to be the beneficiaries, you know, beneficiaries of a higher education, then uh, we sort of thank the society very much, but we don't necessarily see that we have to, you know, return that in, in coin. I think the Chinese still feel, as they would have done long ago, that education, higher education, confers a kind of a moral authority on the recipient. Uh, and, the, and the recipient, therefore, has an obligation, uh, when he or she can, to, to try and express those views, even if it might mean risking their lives. That was Jonathan Spence, former professor of history at Yale University. I spoke to him in 1999. Since we spoke, China's ramped up its security state with the use of artificial intelligence technology and social credit systems. Now, as protests sweep Hong Kong, many fear that similar military interventions might face civilians. Between now and the fall, we'll bring you more stories like this from our 25-year run here on Worldview. Coming up after the break, Global Notes, our look at international music. We'll find out about the music people are turning to after the shootings in El Paso. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and it's time for Global Notes, our look at international music with Catalina Maria Johnson. It is great to see you. Hey, Jerome. Great to be back, although with a difficult and sad topic today. Yes. Yeah, this is, um, this is a tough one, but people turn to music in times of tragedy, and people in El Paso are turning to music, and you've selected some cuts of what people are listening to and uh, what they're using for solace here and inspiration. Yes, and in fact, this is a, a live video, kind of a, a live at the Walmart of a couple of young men who composed 
a corrido, which is an epic story, usually uh, built around heroes, sometimes kind of like dark-sided heroes, but um, the, this form has been around for a long time, this kind of uh, storytelling, and it loan, uh, lends itself to historical events, and it starts, it tells the story of what happened uh, in El Paso and at the Walmart, and they're singing it in the parking lot, and uh, it, it it sets up the heroes uh, that uh, gave their lives unwillingly um, in in that uh, in that scenario. Uh, so that's a real spontaneous act in response. Um, but sometimes people use more historical uh, things that have meant that have been solace givers for a long time. Yes, then that's the next example. This is a song called Eternal Love, Amor Eterno. It has an interesting backstory. It was composed by El Divo de Juarez, one of Mexico's greatest composers, Juan Gabriel. And uh, this song talks about someone basically passing away. They said, I wish your eyes had never closed I wish that you were still here. You, you are the saddest memory I have from Acapulco. And there's a lot of controversy over, was it f- written for his mother? Was it Who was it written for? Um, it was made famous in the version that we're going to hear by Rocio Durcal. But um, this song is often played at funerals because of that line. You know, I wish you were here and I wish your eyes had never closed. And it started to be sung spontaneously at different vigils and prayer services and remembrances in El Paso and has become the anthem, uh, again, to give solace for this event. So this is Amor Eterno, Eternal Love. Eterno, and that is got a great classic syrupy arrangement, very <laughs> nostalgic and kind of uh, soothing. And I can, I, I totally go for that. It's a, it's a, 
it's a, I hate to say this, it's a funeral favorite because of the words and because of the just, you know, heartbreaking kind of emotion portrayed in the, in the lyrics. But I think what's interesting about the use of song, whether it's the corrido, whether it's, uh, in this case, the amor eterno, love eternal, eternal love, is how, um, really music is, generates presence. So it, and it is a way of overtaking space. I mean, when you sing and when music resounds, that space becomes your own. You take possession of it. So to me, it's also a way of kind of sonically saying, you know, we are here and no one's going anywhere. And we are a part of this and we claim this space with our music. So uh, I've loved those expressions in El Paso. Very well said. Catalina Maria Johnson is here with us here on Global Notes, and we're playing music uh, from El Paso, and music people have been using in El Paso to soothe themselves and inspire themselves. And now next we're going to turn from uh, to an, a group that is uh, from there. And from the other side of the border, from Juarez. <laughs> I mean, this is a group where some of it, the chamanas, uh, the shamans in Spanish, some of its members are from El Paso, some of its members are from Juarez. They went back and forth. Some have went to school on one side for when they were younger. Uh, they're not that old, but when they were very young, they would cross the bridge all the time, you know, either to go to school or to come back. And then at some point, that became impossible. They had to, like, choose a side um, be, to do one or the other work or study or live because the crossing became hours and hours and hours long. Needless to say, they're marked uh, by this binational, bicultural straddling of cultures, which is really quite uh, fluid and quite beautiful. And anybody that's lived on any borders of any two countries knows that experience. And uh, you grow up with one side, you know, with your foot on one side yep. of the river and your other foot on the other side of the Rio Grande or Rio Bravo, depending on uh, what you want, want to call it. And this is river, in fact. Yeah. You know, I, we did a program with Canada once uh -huh. when we, after 9-11, made the crossing the border much more difficult. And I went up to Toronto and the CBC and somebody called in and said, well, my, my child's piano teacher is on the other side of the border. I can't do that anymore. It's 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 going to be too much, and we're gonna we're not going to do that anymore. Right. It's it's been a shame. Um, and uh, the Chamanas have a have another song I didn't choose called uh, "Knock It Down," and you can imagine what they're referring to. <laughs> this one is called uh, "River" because I think the river marks you know the border for uh, for those cities. And at the some of the El Paso memorials, people on the other side on Juarez. Uh, lit candles and lighters so that they could be seen. So this is Rio by the Chamanas. Que el futuro 
That's the Chamanas in Rio, and they are a group that is Ciudad Juarez and El Paso-based and mixed that up there right there. And we're talking about songs uh, that have to do with El Paso and the post-shooting incident. And there's been a, a controversial incident that we wanted to mention. Yes, locally. So uh, we're going to kind of like segue from El Paso over uh, to Chicago and the Festival Cubano. And um, a comment was made by a DJ um, Julian Jumpin Perez, a Cuban American DJ, and it uh, let's hear his music first. That's the music of Julian Jumpin' Perez, and he's, um, what was the controversy about? What did he say about El Paso? Well, it was a joke that then was uh, repeated or, you know, commented on quite controversially about something about something like, well, you want to keep Mexicans quiet, the only way to keep them quiet or the best way to keep them quiet is to call ICE. Well, you can imagine um, there was a response <laughs> from the community, um, the Latinx community that's at the Festival Cubano. And uh, then post after this particular performance, there was another performance scheduled at My House Festival just this last weekend, and he was canceled. He was at... His invitation was removed or rescinded. And the, there's been a Facebook apology since by the DJ uh, Julian Jumpin Perez. But I think the issue is not to like just uh, find an enemy and uh, scream about um, what everybody else is doing and what the leaders are saying and the divisiveness, which is all true. But um, as, as recently Eddie Glaude senior from Princeton, very powerful uh, clip on MSNBC said, you know, this is within us. This is within us. And it may be that political rhetoric is bringing it out, but it's in us and in our hearts and we have to face it. And I think as a Latinx community, we also have to face that we have our own divisions that, um, you know, musically, just some musical examples, you know, uh, there, there have been uh, communities. Mexico has taken a long time to recognize the tercera raíz, the third root, which is the Afro Mexicans. Um, Peruvians wanted to be Creole and European, and, and also kind of limited the exposure of Afro Peruvians until David Byrne found Susana Baca and Afro Peruvian music. So, you know, we we've all, you know, we ourselves have to look at ourselves. We are being made targets, and I think the Mexican-American community and the Mexican community feels that very strongly. I've always spoken Spanish with my mother in public, and recently it's, it's become, I felt awkward about it. Like, what, you know? Like, am I setting us up as a target? Yet we also have to look at the divisions within our own community, very face-forward. And in this case, there is a division that's been driven by politics, by right. the U.S. allowing Cubans into this country very easily and not yeah, everybody special, else. Right. <laughs> well, some would say that that's always been the strategy of the colonizers and the settlers to uh, pit, you know, others against them, you know, the, 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 the everybody they'd like to keep down to pit them against each other. So, uh, and it's unfortunately 
been somewhat successful. Yeah. Uh, let's end on, uh, I think, a high note. This yes. this American teen song is is wonderful, and it's all about El Paso, our next It song. is. It's the city of the 915, and it's uh, Khalid spent uh, some formative years in El Paso, uh, ended his high school there, and in response to the shootings, um, is doing a fundraiser September 1st. So, um, and he very specifically is doing a fundraiser in at the University of El Paso for El Paso victims, and uh, he he shouts out his love for the city of 915 here in this song, Khalid. Living the good life full of goodbyes My eyes are on the gray sky Saying I don't want to come home tonight Yeah, and I'm high up off work I don't even remember But my friend passed out in the override Oh, I'm from the city of the 915 Where all the girls are pretty And they're down for the hype All my boys are with me going up for the night But who cares, who cares, this is all yeah So wake me up in the spring While I'm half my American dream We don't always say what we And that's American Teen by Khalid, and he uh, he attended America's high school in El Paso. And so when he's talking about his American dream, it has a double entendre. It is, does, and um, it's beautiful that he is uh, doing this fundraiser for El Paso. I think it's nice to end on a note of... Uh, you know, of unity and harmony and, and possibilities in, expressed in the music, too. I enjoyed this. The video is very nice, and um, it's been viewed 20 million times. I don't know. It's a great <laughs> it's, tune. It's a great <laughs> tune uh, and a great sentiment, and, and it's all about a Paso. It is. Well, Catalina Maria Johnson, thanks a lot for joining us and talking about some of the music people are using uh, in El Paso to find solace and inspiration. And we'll talk to you next week on Global Notes. Yeah, that's right. And I want to also invite people to check out Beat Latino on Vocal. I'll be doing a whole hour of Borderlands music. Ah, Excellent. I look forward to that. Um, Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll look forward to your friends in the Sarabi Ensemble who are going to drop by and talk about their peace tour. They're doing a couple of concerts that revolve around their tour of the world that they did to uh, inspire themselves and others to make a more peaceful world. So we'll talk to them tomorrow on Worldview. Oh, wonderful. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine for production assistance. And thanks to J. Kyle White Sullivan for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview.